Radio Mano Papachango. promised I'm coming to you with a little extra content um, largely because I figure you're sitting around with nothing to do and I'm sitting around with nothing to do we all have lots of things to do but you know what I mean the energy is weird so I thought uh, why not get some uh, make some progress on this idea I've had um, for a podcast called what makes this book great so essentially what's going to happen is I'm going to read you a story and then I'm going to unpack it for you, uh, at least unpack it the way it looks to me. Now, uh, I don't want anyone to get confused. I'm not saying there's only one way to read a story or there's only, uh, you know, one set of insights that uh, a piece of literature can bring to you. Uh, this is just what I see. And uh, I'll be reading you some of my favorite pieces of literature I'm not going to read whole novels, um, but I will read short stories. I'll read poetry. I'll read uh, excerpts from novels, um, even essays, whatever. Anything that is just seems to me to be a great piece of writing. Um, the point is to to bring that to you, to, to show you something I love and then explain to you why I love it. Uh, the whole idea is based on are sort of inspired by Rick Beato's YouTube channel, What Makes This Song Great. If you haven't checked that out, uh, definitely check him out. He's fantastic at this. In fact, I even have a, a pro another project I'll probably be doing here in the next few days um, where I want to explain why I love what Rick Beato does so much. And uh, I think I'm going to call that what makes What Makes This Song Great, great. It's a little meta, might be a little too meta for some people, but I like it. Anyway, uh, today's story is The Liar by Tobias Wolf. Tobias Wolf is a really interesting cat. He, I think he teaches at Stanford at this point. I'm not sure. He taught at um, Syracuse University for a while when I was in college in the early 80s. And he actually came and did a reading at Hobart College uh, I remember it was a really cold, rainy night, and um, so when you might have expected 40 or 50 students to show up, uh, I think there were about a dozen of us, and he wasn't well-known at the time. This was before his book, This Boy's Life, had been adapted to a film starring Leonardo DiCaprio at, I don't know, 13 years old or something, and uh, Robert De Niro and um, Ellen Barkin, fantastic film. Um, and I, I remember sitting, you know, just a few feet from him, and and his energy was um, very kind of dry, wry, in the sense that he's funny. But he's never funny just for the sake of being funny. There's always some depth and some cut to his humor. 
Um, I've read a bunch of his books. I've read a lot of his short stories. This Boy's Life is a fantastic memoir. Um, his uh, book about his time in Vietnam is called In Pharaoh's Army. Excellent, excellent book. Um, and one theme that sort of runs through a lot of his writing is his relationship with his mother. And uh, you'll see that that's also something that runs through this story. So the story is called The Liar. It's uh, not a long story. Let's see. It's uh, 20 pages, 21 pages. Uh, so I'm just going to read through the story first. And then I'll come back and go through it and, and talk about some of the things that I've seen there. So I would invite you to sit back and close your eyes and let Uncle Chris read you this story. The Liar by Tobias Wolf. My mother read everything except books. Advertisements on buses, entire menus as we ate, billboards. If it had no cover, it interested her. So when she found a letter in my drawer that was not addressed to her, she read it. What difference does it make if James has nothing to hide? That was her thought. She stuffed the letter in the drawer when she finished it and walked from room to room in the big empty house, talking to herself. She took the letter out and read it again to get the facts straight. Then, without putting on her coat or locking the door, she went down the steps and headed for the church at the end of the street. No matter how angry and confused she might be, she always went to four o'clock mass, and now it was four o'clock. It was a fine day, blue and cold and still. But mother walked as though into a strong wind, bent forward at the waist with her feet hurrying behind in short, busy steps. My brother and sisters and I considered this walk of hers funny, and we smirked at one another when she crossed in front of us to stir the fire or water a plant. We didn't let her catch us at it. It would have puzzled her to think that there might be anything amusing about her. Her one concession to the fact of humor was an insincere, startling laugh. Strangers often stared at her. While mother waited for the priest, who was late, she prayed. She prayed in a familiar, orderly, firm way. First, for her late husband, my father. Then, for her parents, also dead. She said a quick prayer for my father's parents, just touching base. She had disliked them. And finally, for her children, in order of their ages, ending with me. Mother did not consider originality a virtue, and until my name came up, her prayers were exactly the same as on any other day. But when she came to me, she spoke up boldly. I thought he wasn't going to do it anymore. Murphy said he was cured. What am I supposed to do now? There was reproach in her tone. Mother put great hope in her notion that I was cured. She regarded my cure as an answer to her prayers, and by way of thanksgiving sent a lot of money to the Thomasite Indian Mission, money she had been saving for a trip to Rome. She felt cheated, and she let her feelings be known. When the priest came in, Mother slid back on the seat and followed the Mass with concentration. After communion, she began to worry again and went straight home 
without stopping to talk to Frances, the woman who always cornered Mother after Mass to tell her about the awful things done to her by communists, devil worshippers, and Rosicrucians. Frances watched her go with narrowed eyes. Once in the house, Mother took the letter from my drawer and brought it into the kitchen. She held it over the stove with her fingernails, looking away so that she would not be drawn into it again, and set it on fire. When it began to burn her fingers, she dropped it in the sink and watched it blacken and flutter and close upon itself like a fist. Then she washed it down the drain and called Dr. Murphy. The letter was to my friend Ralphie in Arizona. He used to live across the street from us, but he had moved. Most of the letter was about a tour we, the junior class, had taken of Alcatraz. That was all right. What got mother was the last paragraph, where I said that she had been coughing up blood and doctors weren't sure what was wrong with her, but that we were hoping for the best. This wasn't true. Mother took pride in her physical condition, considered herself a horse. I'm a regular horse, she would reply when people asked about her health. For several years now, I'd been saying unpleasant things that weren't true, and this habit of mine irked Mother greatly, enough to persuade her to send me to Dr. Murphy, in whose office I was sitting when she burned the letter. Dr. Murphy was our family physician and had no training in psychoanalysis, but he took an interest in things of the mind, as he put it. He had treated me for appendicitis and tonsillitis, and Mother thought that he could put the truth into me as easily as he took things out of me, a hope Dr. Murphy did not share. He was basically interested in getting me to understand what I did, and lately he had been moving toward the conclusion that I understood what I did as well as I ever would. Dr. Murphy listened to Mother's account of the letter and what she had done with it. He was curious about the wording I had used and became irritated when Mother told him she had burned it. The point is, she said, he was supposed to be cured, and he's not. Margaret, I never said he was cured. You certainly did. Why else would I have sent over a thousand dollars to the Thomasite mission? I said that he was responsible. That means that James knows what he's doing, not that he's going to stop doing it. I'm sure you said he was cured. Never. To say that someone is cured, you have to know what health is. With this kind of thing, that's impossible. What do you mean by curing James anyway? You know. Tell me anyway. Getting him back to reality. What else? Whose reality? Mine or yours? Murphy, what are you talking about? James isn't crazy. He's a liar. Well, you have a point there. What am I going to do with him? I don't think there's much you can do. Be patient. I've been patient. If I were you, Margaret, I wouldn't make too much of this. James doesn't steal, does he? Of course not. Or beat people up or talk back? No. Then you have a lot to be thankful for. I don't think I can take any more of it. That business about leukemia last summer, and now this. Eventually he'll outgrow it, I think. Murphy, he's 16 years old. What if he doesn't outgrow it? What if he just gets better at it? Finally, Mother saw that she wasn't going to get any satisfaction from Dr. Murphy, who kept reminding her of her blessings. 
she said something cutting to him, and he said something pompous back, and then she hung up. Dr. Murphy stared at the receiver. Hello, he said, then replaced it on the cradle. He ran his hand over his head, a habit remaining from a time when he had had hair. <laughs> to show that he was a good sport, he often joked about his baldness, but I had the feeling that he regretted it deeply. Looking at me across the desk, he must have wished that he hadn't taken me on. Treating a friend's child was like investing a friend's money. I don't have to tell you who that was, I nodded. Dr. Murphy pushed back his chair and swiveled it around so he could look out the window behind him, which took up most of the wall. There were still a few sailboats out on the bay, but they were all making for sure. A woolly gray fog had covered up the bridge and was moving in fast. The water seemed calm from this far up, but when I looked closely I could see white flecks everywhere, so it must have been pretty choppy. I'm surprised at you, he said leaving something like that lying around for her to find. If you really have to do these things, you could at least be kind and do them discreetly. It's not so easy for your mother, what with your father dead and all the others somewhere else. I know, I didn't mean for her to find it. Well, he tapped his pencil against his teeth. He was not convinced professionally, but personally he may have been. I think you ought to go home now and straighten things out. I guess I'd better. Tell your mother I might stop by, either tonight or tomorrow, and James, don't underestimate her. While my father was alive, we usually went to Yosemite for three or four days during the summer. My mother would drive and father would point out places of interest, meadows where boom towns once stood, hanging trees, rivers that were said to flow upstream at certain times, or he read to us. He had that grown-up's idea that children love Dickens and Sir Walter Scott. The four of us sat in the back seat with our faces composed, attentive, while our hands and feet pushed, pinched, stomped, goosed, prodded, dug, and kicked. One night a bear came into our camp just after dinner. Mother had made a tuna casserole, and it must have smelled to him like something worth dying for. He came into the camp while we were sitting around the fire and stood swaying back and forth. My brother Michael saw him first and elbowed me. Then my sister saw him and screamed. Mother and father had their backs to him, but mother must have guessed what it was because she immediately said, don't scream like that. You might frighten him and there's no telling what he'll do. We'll just sing and he'll go away. We sang, row, row, row your boat, but the bear stayed. He circled us several times, rearing up now and then on his hind legs to stick his nose in the air. By the light of the fire, I could see his dog-like face and watch the muscles roll under his loose skin like rocks in a sack. We sang harder as he circled us, coming closer and closer. All right, mother said, enough's enough. She stood up abruptly. The bear stopped moving and watched her. Beat it, mother said. The bear sat down and looked from side to side. Beat it, she said again, and leaned over and picked up a rock. Margaret, don't, my father said. She threw the rock hard and hit the bear in the stomach. Even in the dim light, I could see the dust rising from his fur. He grunted and stood to his full height. See that, mother shouted. He's filthy, filthy. One of my sisters giggled. Mother picked up another rock. 
Please, Margaret, my father said. Just then the bear turned and shambled away. Mother pitched the rock after him. For the rest of the night he loitered around the camp until he found the tree where we had hung our food. He ate it all. The next day we drove back to the city. We could have brought more supplies in the valley, but father wanted to go and would not give in to any argument. On the way home he tried to jolly everyone up by making jokes, but Michael and my sisters ignored him and looked stonily out the windows. Things were never easy between my mother and me, but I didn't underestimate her. She underestimated me. When I was little, she suspected me of delicacy because I didn't like being thrown into the air, and because when I saw her and the others working themselves up for a roughhouse, I found somewhere else to be. When they did drag me in, I got hurt. A knee in the lip, a bent finger, a bloody nose, and this too mother seemed to hold against me, as if I arranged my hurts to get out of playing. Even things I did well got on her nerves. We all loved puns except mother, who didn't get them, and next to my father I was the best in the family. My specialty was the Swifty. You can bring the prisoner down, said Tom condescendingly. My father encouraged me to perform at dinner, which must have been a trial for outsiders. Mother wasn't sure what was going on, but she didn't like it. She suspected me in other ways. I couldn't go to the movies without her examining my pockets to make sure I had enough money to pay for the ticket. When I went away to camp, she tore my pack apart in front of all the boys who were waiting in the bus outside the house. I would rather have gone without my sleeping bag and a few changes of underwear, which I had forgotten, than be made such a fool of. Her distrust was the thing that made me forgetful. And she thought I was cold-hearted because of what happened the day my father died and later at his funeral. I didn't cry at my father's funeral and showed signs of boredom during the eulogy, fiddling around with the hymnals. Mother put my hands into my lap and I left them there without moving them as though they were things I was holding for someone else. The effect was ironical and she resented it. We had a sort of reconciliation a few days later after I closed my eyes at school and refused to open them. When several teachers and then the principal failed to persuade me to look at them, or at some reward they claimed to be holding, I was handed over to the school nurse who tried to pry the lids open and scratched one of them badly. My eye swelled up and I went rigid. The principal panicked and called mother who fetched me home. I wouldn't talk to her or open my eyes or bend, and they had to lay me on the back seat, and when we reached the house, mother had to lift me up the steps one at a time. Then she put me on the couch and played the piano to me all afternoon. Finally, I opened my eyes. We hugged each other, and I wept. Mother did not really believe my tears, but she was willing to accept them because I had staged them for her benefit. My lying separated us, too, and the fact that my promises not to lie anymore seemed to mean nothing to me. Often my lies came back to her in embarrassing ways, people stopping her in the street and saying how sorry they were to hear that. No one in the neighborhood enjoyed embarrassing mother, and those situations stopped occurring once everyone got wise to me. There was no saving her from strangers, though. 
The summer after father died, I visited my uncle in Reading, and when I got back, I found to my surprise that mother had come to meet my bus. I tried to slip away from the gentleman who had sat next to me, but I couldn't shake him. When he saw mother embrace me, he came up and presented her with a card and told her to get in touch with him if things got any worse. She gave him his card back and told him to mind his own business. Later, on the way home, she made me repeat what I had said to the man. She shook her head. It's not fair to people, she said, telling them things like that. It confuses them. It seemed to me that mother had confused the man, not I, but I didn't say so. I agreed with her that I shouldn't say such things and promised not to do it again, a promise I broke three hours later in conversation with a woman in the park. It wasn't only the lies that disturbed mother. It was their morbidity. This was the real issue between us, as it had been between her and my father. Mother did volunteer work at Children's Hospital in St. Anthony's Dining Hall, collected things for the St. Vincent de Paul Society. She was a lighter of candles. My brother and sisters took after her in this way. My father was a cursor of the dark, and he loved to curse the dark. He was never more alive than when he was indignant about something. For this reason, the most important act of the day for him was reading the evening paper. Ours was a terrible paper, indifferent to the city that bought it, indifferent to medical discoveries, except for new kinds of gases that made your hands fall off when you sneezed, and indifferent to politics and art. Its business was outrage, horror, gruesome coincidence. When my father sat down in the living room with the paper, mother stayed in the kitchen and kept the children busy, all except me, because I was quiet and could be trusted to amuse myself. I amused myself by watching my father. He sat with his knees spread, leaning forward, his eyes only inches from the print. As he read, he nodded to himself. Sometimes he swore and threw the paper down and paced the room, then picked it up and began again. Over a period of time, he developed the habit of reading aloud to me. He always started with the society section, which he called the parasite page. This column began to take on the character of a comic strip or a serial, with the same people showing up from one day to the next, blinking in chiffon, awkwardly holding their drinks for the sake of peninsula orphans, grinning under sunglasses on the deck of a ski hut in the Sierras. The skiers really got his goat probably because he couldn't understand them. The activity itself was inconceivable to him. When my sisters went to Lake Tahoe one winter weekend with some friends and came back excited about the beauty of the place, father calmed them right down. Snow, he said, is overrated. Then the news, or what passed in the paper for news, Bodies unearthed in Scotland, former Nazis winning elections, rare animals slaughtered, misers expiring naked in freezing houses upon mattresses stuffed with thousands, millions, marrying priests, divorcing actresses, high rolling oilmen building fantastic mausoleums in honor of a favorite horse, cannibalism. Through all this, my father waited with a fixed and weary smile. Mother encouraged him to take up causes, to join groups, but he would not. He was uncomfortable with people outside the family. He and my mother rarely went out and rarely had people in except on feast days and national holidays. Their guests were always the same, 
Dr. Murphy and his wife, and several others whom they had known since childhood. Most of these people never saw each other outside our house, and they didn't have much fun together. Father discharged his obligations as host by teasing everyone about stupid things they had said or done in the past and forcing them to laugh at themselves. Though Father did not drink, he insisted on mixing cocktails for the guests. He would not serve straight drinks like rum and coke or even scotch on the rocks, only drinks of his own devising. He gave them lawyerly names like the advocate, the hanging judge, the ambulance chaser, the mouthpiece, and described their concoction in detail. He told long, complicated stories in a near whisper, making everyone lean in his direction, and repeated important lines. He also repeated the important lines in the stories my mother told, and corrected her when she got something wrong. When the guests came to the ends of their own stories, he would point out the morals. Dr. Murphy had several theories about my father, which he used to test on me in the course of our meetings. Dr. Murphy had by this time given up his glasses for contact lenses and lost weight in the course of fasts, which he undertook regularly. Even with his baldness, he looked years younger than when he had come to the parties at our house. Certainly, he did not look like my father's contemporary, which he was. One of Dr. Murphy's theories was that father had exhibited a classic trait of people who had been gifted children by taking an undemanding position in an uninteresting firm. He was afraid of finding his limits, Dr. Murphy told me. As long as he kept stamping papers and making out wills, he could go on believing that he didn't have limits. Dr. Murphy's fascination with father made me uneasy, and I felt traitorous listening to him. While he lived, my father would never have submitted himself for analysis. It seemed a betrayal to put him on the couch now that he was dead. I did enjoy Dr. Murphy's recollections of father as a child. He told me something about what had happened when they were in the Boy Scouts. Their troop had been on a long hike and father had fallen behind. Dr. Murphy and the others decided to ambush him as he came down the trail. They hid in the woods on each side and waited. But when father walked into the trap, none of them moved or made a sound, and he strolled on without even knowing they were there. He had the sweetest look on his face, Dr. Murphy said, listening to the birds, smelling the flowers, just like Ferdinand the bull. He also told me that my father's drinks tasted like medicine. While I rode my bicycle home from Dr. Murphy's office, Mother fretted. She felt terribly alone, but she didn't call anyone because she also felt like a failure. My lying had that effect on her. She took it personally. At such times, she did not think of my sisters, one happily married, the other doing brilliantly at Fordham. She did not think of my brother Michael, who had given up college to work with runaway children in Los Angeles. She thought of me. She thought that she had made a mess of her family. Actually, she managed the family well. While my father was dying upstairs, she pulled us together. She made lists of chores and gave each of us a fair allowance. Bedtimes were adjusted and she stuck by them. She set regular hours for homework. Each child was made responsible for the next eldest and I was given a dog. She told us frequently, predictably, that she loved us. 
At dinner, we were each expected to contribute something, and after dinner, she played the piano and tried to teach us to sing in harmony, which I could not do. Mother, who was an admirer of the Trapp family, considered this a character defect. Our life together was more orderly, healthy, while Father was dying than it had been before. He had set us rules to follow, not much different, really, than the ones Mother gave us after he got sick, but he had administered them in a fickle way. Though we were supposed to get an allowance, we always had to ask him for it, and then he would give us too much because he enjoyed seeming magnanimous. Sometimes he punished us for no reason, because he was in a bad mood. He was apt to decide, as one of my sisters was going out to a dance, that she had better stay home and do something to improve herself. Or he would sweep us all up on a Wednesday night and take us ice skating. He changed after he learned about the cancer and became more calm as the disease spread. He relaxed his teasing way with us, and from time to time it was possible to have a conversation with him which was not about the last thing that had made him angry. He stopped reading the paper and spent time at the window. He and I became close. He taught me to play poker and sometimes helped me with my homework. But it wasn't his illness that drew us together. The reserve between us had begun to break down after the incident with the bear during the drive home. Michael and my sisters were furious with him for making us leave early and wouldn't talk to him or look at him. He joked. Though it had been a grisly experience, we should grin and bear it, and so on. His joking seemed perverse to the others, but not to me. I had seen how terrified he was when the bear came into the camp. He had held himself so still that he had begun to tremble. When Mother started pitching rocks, I thought he was going to bolt, really. I understood. I had been frightened, too. The others took it as a lark after they got used to having the bear around, but for Father and me, it got worse through the night. I was glad to be out of there, grateful to Father for getting me out. I saw that his jokes were how he held himself together, so I reached out to him with a joke. There's a bear outside, said Tom intently. The others turned cold looks on me. They thought I was sucking up, but Father smiled. When I thought of other boys being close to their fathers, I thought of them hunting together, tossing a ball back and forth, making birdhouses in the basement, and having long talks about girls, war, careers. Maybe the reason it took us so long to get close was that I had this idea. It kept getting in the way of what we really had, which was a shared fear. Toward the end, my father slept most of the time, and I watched him. From below, sometimes, faintly, I heard Mother playing the piano. Occasionally, he nodded off in his chair while I was reading to him. His bathrobe would fall open then, and I would see the long, new scar on his stomach, red as blood against his white skin. His ribs all showed, and his legs were like cables. I once read in a biography of a great man that he, quote, died well, unquote. I assume the writer meant that he kept his pain to himself, did not set off false alarms, and did not too much inconvenience those who were to stay behind. My father died well. 
His irritability gave way to something else, something like serenity. In the last days, he became tender. It was as though he had been rehearsing the scene, that the anger of his life had been a kind of stage fright. He managed his audience, us, with an old trooper's sense of when to clown and when to stand on his dignity. We were all moved and admired his courage, as he intended we should. He died downstairs in a shaft of late afternoon sunlight on New Year's Day, while I was reading to him. I was alone in the house and didn't know what to do. His body did not frighten me, but immediately and sharply, I miss my father. It seemed wrong to leave him sitting up, and I tried to carry him upstairs to the bedroom, but it was too hard alone. So I called up my friend Ralphie across the street. When he came over and saw what I wanted him for, he started crying, but I made him help me anyway. A couple of hours later, mother got home, and when I told her that father was dead, she ran upstairs, calling his name. A few minutes later, she came back down. Thank God, she said. At least he died in bed. This seemed important to her, and I didn't tell her otherwise. But that night, Ralphie's parents called. They were, they said, shocked at what I had done, and so was mother when she heard the story, shocked and furious. Why? Because I had not told her the truth, or because she had learned the truth and could not go on believing that father had died in bed. I really don't know. Mother, I said, coming into the living room, I'm sorry about the letter. I really am. She was arranging wood in the fireplace and did not look at me or speak for a moment. Finally, she finished and straightened up and brushed her hands. She stepped back and looked at the fire she had laid. That's all right, she said. Not bad for a consumptive. Mother, I'm sorry. Sorry? Sorry you wrote it or sorry I found it? I wasn't going to mail it. It was sort of a joke. Ha ha. She took up the whisk broom and swept bits of bark into the fireplace, then closed the drapes and settled on the couch. Sit down, she said. She crossed her legs. Listen, do I give you advice all the time? Yes, I do. I nodded. Well, that doesn't make any difference. I'm supposed to. I'm your mother. I'm going to give you some more advice for your own good. You don't have to make all these things up, James. They'll happen anyway. She picked at the hem of her skirt. Do you understand what I'm saying? I think so. You're cheating yourself. That's what I'm trying to tell you. When you get to be my age, you won't know anything at all about life. All you'll know is what you've made up. I thought about that. It seemed logical. She went on. I think maybe you need to get out of yourself more. Think more about other people. The doorbell rang. Go see who it is, Mother said. We'll talk about this later. It was Dr. Murphy. He and Mother made their apologies, and she insisted that he stay for dinner. I went to the kitchen to fetch ice for their drinks, and when I returned, they were talking about me. I sat on the sofa and listened. Dr. Murphy was telling Mother not to worry. James is a good boy, he said. I've been thinking about my oldest, Terry. 
He's not really dishonest, you know, but he's not really honest either. I can't seem to reach him. At least James isn't furtive. No, Mother said, he's never been furtive. Dr. Murphy clasped his hands between his knees and stared at them. Well, that's Terry, furtive. Before we sat down to dinner, Mother said grace. Dr. Murphy bowed his head and closed his eyes and crossed himself at the end, though he had lost his faith in college. When he told me that during one of our meetings in just those words, I had the picture of a raincoat hanging by itself outside a dining hall. He drank a good deal of wine and persistently turned the conversation to the subject of his relationship with Terry. He admitted that he had come to dislike the boy. Then he mentioned several patients of his by name, some of them known to mother and me, and said that he disliked them too. He used the word dislike with relish, like someone on a diet permitting himself a single potato chip. I don't know what I've done wrong, he said abruptly, and with reference to no particular thing. Then again, maybe I haven't done anything wrong. I don't know what to think anymore. Nobody does. I know what to think, mother said. So does the solipsist. How can you prove to a solipsist that he's not creating the rest of us? This was one of Dr. Murphy's favorite riddles, and almost any pretext was sufficient for him to trot it out. He was a child with a card trick. Send him to bed without dinner, Mother said. Let him create that. Dr. Murphy suddenly turned to me. Why do you do it? he asked. It was a pure question. It had no object beyond the satisfaction of his curiosity. Mother looked at me, and there was the same curiosity in her face. I don't know, I said, and that was the truth. Dr. Murphy nodded, not because he had anticipated my answer, but because he accepted it. Is it fun? No, it's not fun. I can't explain. Why is it all so sad, Mother asked. Why all the diseases? Maybe, Dr. Murphy said, sad things are more interesting. Not to me, Mother said. Not to me either, I said. It just comes out that way. After dinner, Dr. Murphy asked Mother to play the piano. He particularly wanted to sing, Come home, Abby, the light's on the stair. That old thing, Mother said. She stood and folded her napkin deliberately, and we followed her into the living room. Dr. Murphy stood behind her as she warmed up. Then they sang, Come home, Abby, the light's on the stair. And I watched him stare down at Mother intently as if he were trying to remember something. Her own eyes were closed. After that, they sang, O Magnum Mysterium. They sang it in parts, and I regretted that I had no voice. It sounded so good. Come on, James, Dr. Murphy said, as mother played the last chords. These old tunes not good enough for you? He just can't sing, mother said. When Dr. Murphy left, mother lit the fire and made more coffee. She slouched down in the big chair, sticking her legs straight out and moving her feet back and forth. That was fun, she said. Did you and father ever do things like that? A few times, when we were first going out. I don't think he really enjoyed it. He was like you. I wondered if mother and father had had a good marriage. He admired her and liked to look at her. Every night at dinner, he had us move the candlestick slightly to the right and left of center so he could see her down the length of the table. 
and every evening when she set the table, she put them in the center again. She didn't seem to miss him very much, but I wouldn't really have known if she did, and anyway, I didn't miss him all that much myself, not the way I had. Most of the time I thought about other things. James, I waited. I've been thinking that you might like to go down and stay with Michael for a couple of weeks or so. What about school? I'll talk to Father McSorley. He won't mind. Maybe this problem will take care of itself if you start thinking about other people. I do. I mean helping them, like Michael does. You don't have to go if you don't want to. It's fine with me. Really, I'd like to see Michael. I'm not trying to get rid of you. I know. Mother stretched, then tucked her feet under her. She sipped noisily at her coffee. What did that word mean that Murphy used? You know, the one? Paranoid? That's where someone thinks everyone is out to get him, like that woman who always grabs you after mass, Francis. Not paranoid. Everyone knows what that means. Saul something? Oh, solipsist. A solipsist is someone who thinks he creates everything around him. Mother nodded and blew on her coffee, then put it down without drinking from it. I'd rather be paranoid. Do you really think Francis is? Of course, no question about it. I mean, really sick? Well, that's what paranoid is, is being sick. What do you think, Mother? What are you so angry about? I'm not angry. I lowered my voice. I'm not angry. But you don't believe those stories of hers, do you? Well, no, not exactly. I don't think she knows what she's saying. She just wants someone to listen. She probably lives all by herself in some little room. So she's paranoid. Think of that. And I had no idea. James, we should pray for her. Will you remember to do that? I nodded. I thought of Mother singing, Oh, Magnum Mysterium, saying grace, praying with easy confidence, and it came to me that her imagination was superior to mine. She could imagine things as coming together, not falling apart. She looked at me, and I shrank. I knew exactly what she's going to say. Son, she said, do you know how much I love you? The next afternoon, I took the bus to Los Angeles. I looked forward to the trip, to the monotony of the road and the empty fields by the roadside. Mother walked with me down the long concourse. The station was crowded and oppressive. Are you sure this is the right bus? She asked at the loading platform. Yes. It looks so old, Mother. All right. She pulled me against her and kissed me, then held me an extra second to show that her embrace was sincere, not just like everyone else's, never having realized that everyone else does the same thing. I boarded the bus, and we waved at each other until it became embarrassing. Then Mother began checking through her handbag for something. When she had finished, I stood and adjusted the luggage over my seat. I sat, and we smiled at each other, waved when the driver gunned the engine, shrugged when he got up suddenly to count the passengers, waved again when he resumed his seat. As the bus pulled out, my mother and I were looking at each other with plain relief. I had boarded the wrong bus. This one was bound for Los Angeles, but not by the express route. We stopped in San Mateo, Palo Alto, San Jose, Castroville. When we left Castroville, it began to rain, hard. 
My window would not close all the way, and a thin stream of water ran down the wall onto my seat. To keep dry, I had to stay away from the wall and lean forward. The rain fell harder. The engine of the bus sounded as though it were coming apart. In Salinas, the man sleeping beside me jumped up, but before I had a chance to change seats, his place was taken by an enormous woman in a print dress carrying a shopping bag. She took possession of her seat and spilled over half into mine, backing me up to the wall. That's a storm, she said loudly, then turned and looked at me. Hungry? Without waiting for an answer, she dipped into her bag and pulled out a piece of chicken and thrust it at me. Hey, by God, she hooted. Look at him go to town on that drumstick. A few people turned and smiled. I smiled back around the bone and kept at it. She finished, I finished that piece and she handed me another and then another. Then she started handing out chicken to the people in the seats near us. Outside of San Luis Obispo, the noise from the engine grew suddenly louder, and just as suddenly, there was no noise at all. The driver pulled off to the side of the road and got out, then got on again, dripping wet. A few moments later, he announced that the bus had broken down, and they were sending another bus to pick us up. Someone asked how long that might take, and the driver said he had no idea. Keep your pants on, shouted the woman next to me. Anybody in a hurry to get to L.A. ought to have his head examined. The wind was blowing hard around us, driving sheets of rain against the windows on both sides. The bus swayed gently. Outside, the light was brown and thick. The woman next to me pumped all the people around us for their itineraries and said whether or not she had ever been where they were from or where they were going. How about you? She slapped my knee. Parents own a chicken ranch. I hope so. She laughed. I told her I was from San Francisco. San Francisco. That's where my husband was stationed. She asked me what I did there, and I told her I worked with refugees from Tibet. Is that right? What do you do with a bunch of Tibetans? Seems like there's plenty of other places they could have gone, said a man in front of us, coming across the border like that. We don't go there. What do you do with a bunch of Tibetans, the woman repeated. Try to find them jobs, locate housing, listen to their problems. You understand that kind of talk? Yes. Speak it? Pretty well. I was born and raised in Tibet. My parents were missionaries over there. Everyone waited. They were killed when the communists took over. The big woman patted my arm. It's all right, I said. Why don't you say some of that Tibetan? What would you like to hear? Say, the cow jumped over the moon. She watched me, smiling, and when I finished, she looked at the others and shook her head. Well, that was pretty, like music. Say some more. What? Anything. They bent toward me. The windows suddenly went blind with rain. The driver had fallen asleep and was snoring gently to the swaying of the bus. Outside, the muddy light flickered to pale yellow, and far off there was thunder. The woman next to me leaned back and closed her eyes, and then so did all the others, as I sang to them in what was surely an ancient and holy tongue. Home again, home again one day I know I feel home again, born again, 
wrong again One day I know I feel strong again Lift my head Many times I've been told All this talk will make you fool So I'll close my eyes Look behind Moving on Moving on So I'll close my eyes Look behind Moving on Lost again Lost That song is called Home Again, and it's by Michael Kiwanuka. I first heard it uh, on the TV show Atlanta. Fantastic show, which if you haven't seen that, it's well worth watching. <clears throat> At least season one is. You can skip episode seven, which is just a weird collection of car advertisements and parodies of various things. But uh, the show itself is fantastic. All right, so let's look back at this uh, story. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, I got to say, I've probably read this story 15 times over the years, and reading it to you now, uh, I saw things I hadn't seen before, which is the beauty of literature. You 
You know, the thing about real art is that every time you look at it, you see something different because there are reflective bits in it. So you're seeing yourself and you change over the years or you change minute to minute. Um, so anytime you're going to read a piece of literature with an eye toward really understanding it, get into it knowing that you're going to have to read it at least two, three times. Because the first time is just to experience it. It's just to have the experience of the story, um, the the flow of the story. And then the second time you start to notice maybe some technical things or you start to notice because now you know how it ends. So at the beginning, you see foreshadowing. You see how the author is sort of leaving hints for you, leaving breadcrumbs uh, and uh, sort of indicating where it is that this story is going to go and what we're talking about. So the story's called The Liar, of course, and it's written by a man who is an adult at the time he's telling the story. Uh, the main character, uh, autobiographical, is 16 at the time. It's written in first person, so he's telling us a story, right? We can assume this is Tobias Wolf, um, but it's never good to assume uh, that the author is actually, especially in a short story, right? If it's a straight up memoir, um, then the author has some pact with the reader that he's telling the truth. He or she's telling the truth, at least the truth as it appears to them. But in a situation like this, where it's a work of fiction, um, what we have is a fictional author in a way, right? Because think about it. Look at that first paragraph. My mother read everything except books. Great opening line. Short stories, the opening line is very, very important. In fact, if I'm not hooked in the first three or four sentences of a short story, I normally won't go on with it. Like if I see something in the New Yorker or something like that, because the art of the short story is so much about punch and power and, and condensed intense energy that if the author doesn't get you in those first few lines, then uh, my sense is that uh, it's not going to, it's not worth reading. You know, if you're a poet, get me in that first line. So my mother read everything except books. Well, what do we know about the person speaking? We know he writes books. So we know that this story is going to be largely about the dynamic between his mother, uh, who read everything except books, and him, who grew up to write books. Um, and then I love that line, if it had no cover, it interested her. Such an interesting line, because you could read that as saying, well, if it's raw, if it's exposed, it interested her. Um, because what is a cover? A cover is a protection. So she's interested in the reality and not the artifice. It's just a very interesting line. If it had no cover, it interested her. And then he goes about in the rest of this first paragraph, uh, describing what she did when she found the letter in his drawer and what she thought 
What difference does it make if James has nothing to hide? That was her thought. She stuffed the letter in the drawer when she finished it and walked from room to room in the big empty house talking to herself. So she's totally alone in the house. And yet the narrator of the story claims to know what she did, what she thought, what she muttered to herself. There's no way he can know that. He wasn't there. So right in that first paragraph, we know that what we are reading now is a lie. Right? He makes no attempt. To, he doesn't write this in, in Omniscient Narrator where it's just a story about someone and we don't know who's telling it. No, he says, my mother. Very personal. My mother. This is, I am a person. I'm telling you a story about my mother. And yet, within a couple of sentences, I'm already telling you things that I can't possibly know. That can't possibly be true. So we know that the person telling this story has a very interesting and nuanced understanding of truth. And we know that in the very first paragraph of the story. So his mother now goes to mass. It's four o'clock. It was a fine blue day, fine day, blue and cold and still. But as she walked, et cetera, et cetera. He doesn't know that. How does he know what the day was like? He's telling the story 20, 30 years later. He has no idea what the day was like. So again, we're being told a story that purports to be true. It's told as if it's recording a series of events and conditions and thoughts and dialogue But if you step back and look at it, you know that it's all made up, or at least, uh, you know, the details are certainly made up. While my mother waited for the priest who was late, she prayed. How do we know the priest was late? How do we know what her prayers were? Such personal details are reported as if the author were there watching and listening. Then after... Uh, mother, who, by the way, is called mother. So the first part, the first sentence is my mother. But then after that, through the rest of the story, she's referred to as mother with a capital M. There's this beautiful paragraph where uh, she goes back to the house. She takes the letter from the drawer and brings it to the kitchen. She held it over the stove with her fingernails looking away so she would not be drawn into it again and set it on fire. Beautiful details, again, totally unknowable, but recounted as if they were witnessed. When it began to burn her fingers, she dropped it in the sink and watched it blacken and flutter and close upon itself like a fist. Just beautiful writing there. So beautiful. And anyone who's watched who's lit a magazine on fire or a book or something knows how, how it curls in on itself, but watched it blacken and flutter and close upon itself like a fist. Now, why is that so important? Because this letter, she felt this letter like a punch. This letter was an attack on her. As we learn later in the story, these lies that this boy tells are often um, 
violent and and dark and often involve his mother's sickness and death. And then I love the next the next paragraph. The letter was to my friend Ralphie in Arizona. Ralphie. What a, what a great like little kid. What a great teenage kid name, right? Ralphie. He used to live across the street, but he moved. And then we go through and her, his mother is healthy. Um, but he claimed in the letter that uh, she was coughing up blood and the doctors weren't sure what was wrong. All right. And then we get Dr. Murphy. So what's going on with Dr. Murphy here? Now, one of the hardest things to do, I would say, I, I don't write fiction, but I would imagine that one of the hardest things to do is to convey information to the reader by way of a narrator that the narrator is not aware of. So in other words, Tobias Wolf, the author, is telling you and me things through the voice of this 16-year-old boy that the 16-year-old boy doesn't realize. And that's the tightrope walk that this entire story is, because we see what's going on in a way that the kid doesn't. Um, and that is so much harder than just telling us, right? My father always used to say to me when I was, he was, you know, helping me write things as a kid, he would always say, don't tell me, show me. And this story is so good at that, so good at showing us levels of thought and feeling that would be so much easier to just come out and say, um, but they're suggested. So, for example, Dr. Murphy. What's going on with Dr. Murphy? Well, Dr. Murphy is clearly into this kid's mother, right? Um, and that's one of the reasons that he's taken a personal interest in the kid in trying to help the kid, trying to help his mother. Um, probably he's always been in love with her, but one of his best friends was married to her. And now the best friend is dead. Huh? There seems to be an opening, but Dr. Murphy's married, but Dr. Murphy doesn't seem to be totally into his own family. There's all that business about his own son who he doesn't really like very much. Um, yeah. But it seems to be kind of an impossible situation. We're not sure. Although it does seem that when the mother suggests that maybe uh, James, the narrator, should uh, go visit his brother for a while, maybe that's a recognition that there's an opening to uh, get a little closer to Dr. Murphy. We're not sure about that. Um, but there's this great, great exchange where uh, the mother is saying, hey, you told me he was cured. And, and Dr. Murphy says, no, I never said he was cured. And uh, what do you mean by curing James anyway? And she says, you know, and he says, tell me anyway. Getting him back to reality. What else? Whose reality? Mine or yours? Hmm. Interesting. So Dr. Murphy has a, an understanding that there are multiple realities and that truth is not so obvious James's mother has this idea that truth is what it is. Reality is what it is. But something that James and Dr. Murphy both understand is that mm, 
It's not that simple. Sometimes reality isn't what it appears to be. And sometimes a lie can be more true than the truth. And then we come to the story of the bear in Yosemite. Such an important story because it shows the father's vulnerability and it shows that James and his father bonded over that vulnerability and fear and that they felt something that the other people in the family didn't feel. And so when they were driving home and the father was making the jokes and everybody else was just staring out the window and uh, pissed off that they had to leave Yosemite, that was a moment where the two of them understood each other. And then, of course, we have all the stuff about <clears throat> how he didn't cry at his father's funeral, but then he had essentially a, a nervous breakdown, a seizure at school. He closed his eyes and wouldn't open them and and all those things, all those sort of, um, you know, delayed reaction to his father's death. There's a great moment where he takes a bus to visit his uncle in Reading. And when he gets back, his mother, he finds his mother had come to meet him at the bus. And of course, he'd been spinning yarns with the guy sitting next to him on the bus, telling him, we don't even know what story he told him. Um, but there's this great moment where the guy comes and gives his mother's card and says, you know, call me if things get worse or something. And and then she gives his card back and tells him to mind his own business. Now I'm quoting later on the ride home on the way home. She made me repeat what I had said to the man. She shook her head. It's not fair to people. She said, telling them things like that. It confuses them. And now this is such a great line. He says, it seemed to me that mother had confused the man, not I, but I didn't say so. So the, and he's right, right? Cause the guy on the bus wasn't confused until mother gave him his card back and told him to fuck off. As long as the reality that James had created for the man remained intact, there was no confusion. And there was no damage done. James wasn't a con man. He wasn't selling people snake oil. He wasn't separating them from their money. He wasn't a pickup artist telling lies to women so he could fuck them. He was creating realities that to him were comforting and which arguably did no damage to anyone else. In other words, he's a writer. He's a storyteller. And what he's doing is telling stories. And yes, there's some morbidity to the stories, but this kid's father just died and he's working through that. He's working through something very deep. Another beautiful line. Mother was a lighter of candles. My father was a cursor of the dark. Such an interesting, beautiful way to express it. Some people light candles, others curse the darkness. And he loved to curse the dark. He was never more alive than when he was indignant about something. 
And then we get into these beautiful descriptions of his father reading the paper and being just perpetually disappointed and pissed off. And of course, this is where the material for these stories comes from, right? What the kid's doing is recreating this world of bodies unearthed in Scotland, former Nazis winning elections, rare animal animals slaughtered, misers expiring naked in freezing houses upon mattresses stuffed with thousands, millions, marrying priests. So this is the stuff that got his father riled up when the two of them sat there in that room, had these moments together, their special time together, his father reading these crazy, you know, the daily news or whatever it was, and just being incensed at the stupidity of, of the human species. And remember this line again. He was never more alive than when he was indignant about something. So what the kid's doing is he's creating these stories. He's creating this reality, which was the reality that made his father alive. He's trying to bring his father back to life. It's like he's, he's retroactively trying to save his father's life because these were the things that made his father alive. These, these tragedies, these horrors. So we see what's going on in this kid's head. We see why he's doing these things. And I think Dr. Murphy has a sense as well. But the kid doesn't know, not at this age, and his mother doesn't know. So it's such a beautiful thing to be able to do, to tell this story that it, it places us in a certain perspective, which happens in, in lots of novels. You're an omniscient, you know, you have an omniscient narrator. He's telling you what everyone's thinking. He's telling you what happens in rooms where people are alone and all that. But in this case, it's a first person narrator who's doing that kind of stuff. But this narrator is also limited. His perspective is limited, not by walls, not by distance, but by his own psychological evolution, by his own being a teenager. That's what limits him. He can see what people are thinking. He can tell you what they did when they were alone in the house, but he can't tell you why. And he certainly can't tell you why he did things. So the, it's almost like a puzzle where all the pieces are in place except the motivations. And as the reader, we fill in the motivations. So we understand, for example, why the kid is telling these morbid stories. We understand, to some extent, Dr. Murphy's motivations for coming by. We understand why Dr. Murphy looks down at the kid's mother while she's playing the piano. Uh, I forget the line as if he were trying to remember something. I think it was. Um, Dr. Murphy's insights into the kid's father are very interesting. Um, you know, he said that he exhibited a classic trait of people who had been gifted children by taking an undemanding position. He was afraid of finding his limits, Dr. Murphy told me. Very interesting. To what extent is Dr. Murphy now demonizing the kid's father a little bit because he's 
thinking about moving in on mom. Uh, very interesting. I love the story of when Dr. Murphy and James's father were kids and they were going to ambush him. But nobody moved when he strolled by. He had the sweetest look on his face, listening to the birds, smelling the flowers. And then he ends that paragraph. He also told me that my father's drinks tasted like medicine. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Again, look, look at the role of truth in the story. So Dr. Murphy, everyone's drinking these cocktails that James's father makes. They taste like shit, but they're still drinking them and pretending they don't. So they're lying, right? There's a lot of social lying going on just to, to make life tolerable. So it's really, this is a story about a kid dying and it's a story about how, how slippery truth is. One of the most beautiful passages for me is after dinner with Dr. Murphy and, and James's mother. When Dr. Murphy suddenly turns to him and says, why do you do it? And it's the description is so beautiful. It was a pure question. It had no object beyond the satisfaction of his curiosity. In other words, he's not accusing. He's not saying, I wish you wouldn't do it. I'm, he's, he's just like, what's going on here? Why do you do it? What is the motivation? And because the kid, James, recognizes the purity and innocence of the question, mother looked at me and there was the same curiosity in her face. It's non-judgmental. It's just, what's going on, James? Why do you do this? His answer is, I don't know. I said, and that was the truth. It's a pivotal moment in the story, a story called The Liar. I don't know, I said, and that was the truth. Dr. Murphy nodded, not because he had anticipated my answer, but because he accepted it. Oh, great, great sentence. He nodded, not because he had anticipated. So it wasn't a nod of superiority of, yeah, I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, of course. Sure. Of course, you don't know. But because he accepted it. I see. You don't know. Fair enough. So there's this moment of non-judgmental curiosity. Why is it all so sad, mother asks. Why all the diseases? I don't know. It just comes out that way. Very interesting. Very interesting how so hard to describe darkness. And then we see right after that, after Dr. Murphy goes home and James's mother saying, maybe you should go visit your brother for a while. They're having this talk. She says, I'm not trying to get rid of you. He says, I know. Then mother says, what did that word mean that Murphy used? You know, the one paranoid. That's no, not paranoid soul, something else. So now we see this power flip, right? James knows language better than his mother does. And she's very openly saying, Hey, what does that word? I didn't understand the word he used. 
And James is explaining it. And then she says, do you really think Francis, the woman in the church, is paranoid? And they have this, this conversation. And the mother is really consulting with him, consulting with James, and really interested in his insights into things. That's a, a special moment in a kid's life. And then that beautiful bus ride down to L.A., probably down Route 5. Um, yeah, I don't need to analyze that. That's where the whole story comes together. And the one thing I want to note about that is music. How through the story, um, James says several times that I can't sing. I don't have a good voice. I really wish I could. Uh, his mother considered his um, inability to, to hold a tune or to, to go into harmony with the other kids, a character defect. Um, and so it's not a coincidence that when he's telling the story on the bus about being a Tibetan refugee and he's speaking in <clears throat> what he claims is Tibetan and everybody is comforted and they lean back and they close their eyes and he says i sang to them in what was surely an ancient and holy tongue he's singing this is how he sings he tells stories and the stories that he tells can have the same effect uh, as someone who's singing there's a music and there's a transcendence and there's a magic in a story well told. I hope you enjoyed this first episode of what makes this book great. If you did, let me know and maybe I'll do more. Um, I'm going to play you out with a song called Lovely Day by Bill Withers, who died today. Thanks for listening. When I wake up in the morning, love And the sunlight hurts my eyes And something without warning, love Bears heavy on my mind Then I look at you And the world's alright with me Just one look at you and I know it's gonna be a And the world's all right.
to know. 